Imagine loving a team so much it consumes you. And now imagine that that team provides you with more anguish than joy, to the point where you wish you never even loved them in the first place. We can all relate, right? Well, there may be several different teams who fit the bill, but it sure feels to me that nothing is harder than being a fan of the New York Mets. First hit of the year. Oh. He drives one! Deep left field! That goes Upton! Back near the wall! It's out of here! <laughs> Bartolo has done it! The impossible has happened! We're about to find out what that's like. I'm Dan Schulman, and this is a Swing and a Belt. Welcome in and again, Jerry Seinfeld. Thank you, thank you. Gary, Keith, and Ron, this is one of the most exciting moments of my life. <laughs> If only that were true. <laughs> That's right. Are you still watching the games on TV? Yeah, every night. Every night. Keith, you know, unlike you, who was in it for the money and the fame and the glory, <laughs> I love baseball. And this is baseball. And this is my team. I'll sit there. It's 5 nothing. I know we're not going to win. I don't care. Casey Stern is a busy, multidimensional guy. He's the host of Inside Pitch weekday afternoons on MLB Network Radio, and he also works for Turner Sports, hosting their coverage of the baseball playoffs, the NBA playoffs, and March Madness. And all of that, it's really great. And we'll get into the pennant races and a lot of other baseball topics, but it's not why I wanted to have him on my podcast. It's the anguish he has endured as a Mets fan that was originally behind me reaching out to Casey to come on and share his Mets pain with us on a very public platform. Casey, how does that sound to you? <laughs> it, it sounds like uh, in a world where, you know, now the word positive has a different meaning. I feel good being negative today with you, Dan. How are you? <laughs> I, you know what? I was trying to think of a team, and, and I have a number of friends who are Mets fans, a number of ESPN people in Connecticut and New York and so forth. So I was trying to think of a team where you love your team, but you hate the fact that you love your team. And there are a few teams that would qualify. And I think because I'm from Toronto and I'm a Maple Leafs fan, I think that kind of gets me into the fraternity. So I hope you, you understand that I have felt much of the same anguish that you have felt. The last time the Maple Leafs won a Stanley Cup, I was four months old. So, uh, like, I didn't enjoy it, and I'm hoping to get another one at some point while I'm on this earth. But I will say, Dan, just to interrupt you, as a diehard Islander fan, knowing that uh, Mr. Tavares is there with his comfy uh, Leafs blankie, <laughs> I know all about what's gone up in uh, Toronto with the hockey side. I, I and, and you, you fit. Yeah, I, I read a promo on the Blue Jays game last night because uh, Sportsnet carries all of the Stanley Cup playoffs. So I, I read a promo for the Islander game, and after I read the promo, I went on talkback to our producer, and I said, "So let me get this straight: we got Tavares, and the Islanders are a win away from the conference finals. That's, That's right. how it's working right now." That's so. right. That's right. And look, and look, I love. I, I thought was great on Long Island, but it is it is kind of interesting in, you know, in terms of the Leafs fan base, the Mets, I would throw the Jets in there as another one. I mean, you know, the Nets are trying to take just all teams that end in Ets out of the same category. <laughs> well, if you said no, I was going to start thinking, okay, do I know any T-Wolves fans? Do I know any Sacramento Kings fans? <laughs> uh, Cleveland Indians, like there are others. But let's talk about the Mets. How did you become... I assume you became a fan of the Mets the good old-fashioned way. You grew up in a family with somebody who was a Mets fan. But how did you become a Mets fan? Rebellion. So my entire family are Yankee fans except for me. 
So when I was growing up, and I was named after my grandfather, who at the at the time a rest was passing away in the hospital, he uh, I hadn't been named yet, and I was a little rambunctious. I, I don't know if he almost dropped me, depending upon the urban legend, or if I was just trying to get out of there. But I got the name Casey after Casey Stengel, and not for his Met days. Right. So so you know, <laughs> and my dog's name was Mickey. Everything was Yankees. And I just was that way. You know, I wanted. I loved the underdog always. So that and the fact that living on Long Island, it was easier to get tickets. And you know, then I fell in love with Bob Murphy, who was just. I mean, speaking of late greats, I mean, one of the great voices, as you know, of all time. And it just it just went from there. Next thing you know, I, I realized that I had made probably the worst decision of my life <laughs> at the time I was five. So everything else <laughs> would be uphill after that. <laughs> 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 that's tough living for a five-year-old man. That's yeah. a, that's a, that's some cold <laughs> hard living. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been a lot of pain. Yeah, so educate me a little bit because I, I know there are exceptions to the rule, but I'm under the impression that generally speaking, for New Yorkers, you can be a Yankees, Knicks, Giants, Rangers person, or you're likely to kind of be a Mets, Nets, Jets, Islanders person. And again, I know there are exceptions to the rule, but is that a thing? And why is that a thing? Yeah, that is definitely accurate. You know, honestly, it's it's location more than anything else. I'm a big time Giants football fan. And, you know, from a Long Island standpoint, the drive is is what it is. But the Jets for a long time worked out at Hofstra, about 15 minutes from where I grew up. That is is part of that. I think, you know, it was always it was like the city life was like, the, you know, the Rangers who were at the Garden. Mind you, well, you don't even have to leave Penn Station if you're going from anywhere else. So I don't know. What you, leave it to New Yorkers to complain over nothing, apparently, whoever did this like way back many uh, years ago and, and created this thing. But it did seem that way. And then, you know, kind of like it was like the bridge and tunnel and subway crowd would be sitting there with the Yankees and the Rangers. And if you'd like to overpay for parking and wait to get out of your spot for an hour <laughs> at Shea, then you right. <laughs> end up with the Mets and the Islanders who are on Long Island. So it became that way, I think more probably regionally from the Long Island standpoint. But the irony is, became after the 80s and the Islanders Cup run that if you lived on Long Island, everyone you rooted for for the most time was going to be terrible. And if you lived in the city, you would feel wonderful about everybody that you rooted for on the sports side. So it kind of split in a way that I don't think originally it was intended to. And it's funny, even if the Knicks stink, which they normally do, and yeah. even if the Giants aren't any good, and even if the Rangers aren't any good, those four teams, that side of, of the road, it feels like they're the big boys in town. Again, whether that's a Manhattan thing or they're just more people who root for them. But it seems like your side of the fence is underdog town in, in all four respects. Yeah, I'm basically the little brother uh, for right. a living as a sports fan. <laughs> it, it, it was that way for a long time because I think about, for me growing up, really beginning my real love for baseball in the 80s and seeing all the Mets in their heyday. And then when it went the other way, you know, at that time period still, you're looking at the Danny Tartables and the Mel Halls. And, you know, outside of Donnie, there wasn't much there, right? So, but the Yankees would still get the front page for how bad they were. Even then, after really after 88, it kind of never went back. I think that that team in the 80s, obviously, for a lot of reasons outside of just baseball, carried a lot of some of them good, some not so good, but a lot of reasons where they carried everybody's attention. They were volatile. After that, I mean, the Mets have always kind of been a back page, really, including the Subway Series where, look, that game one, not to be bitter, goes a different way. They might not sit there and lose that series in five right. games. Did you at any point, either at age five or after that, <laughs> did you ever say to yourself, okay, I'm out. I am taking my fandom to another team. 
every day in my life, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's tough every being day. Casey Stern. <laughs> every day of my life. I mean, honestly, it's, they suck you in, and then it's like, this is really, this torture is not worth it. So, yeah, I, I think so. But I've always been a believer, and, I, I, you know, look, the Islanders, I think the enjoyment I'm having now from what they're doing, part of that comes from you feel the hurt and the pain. I mean, it's like any relationship. Sports are, are, are just like any relationship you go through in your life. If you go through a terrible breakup, the next time you have a great relationship, you're going to be that time 10 times more ready. But also, I think really that that high of the high is going to be even higher than it would have been, unfortunately, for the men. Uh, every time I get out of that tunnel, the light at the end of it is a train coming. So that's the unfortunate part about being a Met fan. Yeah, because there are worse franchises, depending on how you define worse. Like, I mean, the Mets have been to the World Series. They've had good teams. They've had great players. But you're right. It's almost the Charlie Brown-Lucy thing where you know how this is going to end, but you still go to try to kick the football. And that, to me, feels more Mets-ish than any other franchise I can think of, and I'm sure we'll get into some of the off the field and some of the PR snafus that they've had and all that, but maybe you could explain. It's not just that it's hard when they lose. Is it the circus-like atmosphere and all of the teasing and, no, we're going to be good and then we're not? And it, it, Is it all of the emotional yo-yo that you've been on that makes it hard to be a Mets fan? I mean, at this point, even Angel Hernandez has a better view of what he looks at when he goes and watches the video than the Mets <laughs> looking at their own personnel over the, over the years <laughs> of my lifetime. So, yeah, you know, and I think it's like you think about, right, like the Coyote and the Roadrunner. I, it, it is, you know, why do people kind of slow down and watch, you know, two people in some sort of a fight over, you know, fries at a concession stand? Because, I mean, it just, it, that's why reality TV exists, right? So it's like, you know, being a Met fan, you get kind of sucked into the drama and anytime that there's a glimmer of hope you know the great thing is is i always say being a met fan is like jumping into a pool and then deciding i probably should have thought of, does it have water in here is there water does anybody see any water because that every time that they're good you jump right back in last year great example right that great 20 game stretch which was still wonderful but i mean you know i i think if you're going to be a fan this is what it's all about. The fans nowadays don't take enough time to enjoy when things are good. Don't worry about whether or not it's real. Just enjoy it while it's happening. Right. Of course, I didn't call Casey when things are good to come on the podcast. I called Casey to, to talk about the anguish of being a Mets fan. We only have two days a year, Dan, and we don't want to make sure we lock <laughs> into just those two calendar days. <laughs> so I, I did something with Casey that I've never done before. I gave him a homework assignment before he came on the podcast, and I said, can you put together a list of the five Metsiest moments of your life to illustrate to listeners what it's like to be a Mets fan? And not only did he do that, he couldn't contain it to a list of just five. There, there were too many moments of anguish for him to do just five. So this is something you do on your radio show. Everybody loves lists, and you do a lot of countdowns, five to one, you and Lidge or whoever you're with. So I'm going to turn it over to you, and I'll chime in a little bit here and there. But let's start at the honorable mentions and work our way up to the top, as it were. All right, I'll give you the uh, the mentions first because I, I ended up jotting and scribbling, which is what I do for our power rankings or any of the lists we do on the show. And then you just try and kind of number them. It's like, wait, they said five and I have 12. <laughs> How am I supposed to do this? And then, you know, because people get crazy as if like these these picks mean anything. Honorable mentions for me, I think the Brody leak, uh, even though it's recent and there's recency bias. Van Wagenen released a statement that read, in part, Jeff proposed an idea of playing the game an hour later. I misunderstood that this was the commissioner's idea. In actuality, it was Jeff's suggestion. My 
frustration with the commissioner was wrong and unfounded. And as I bring Buster Olney in for reaction, I would point out that uh, the two different members of the Wilpon family who own the Mets released statements extraordinarily critical of their own general manager, Brody Van Wagenen, and misspelled his name in doing so. What are we supposed to make of this? And the irony of that is is really that at the end of the day, A, Brody probably had texts from a lot of GMs who were like, oh, thank God you said it, even though it was by accident. <laughs> and B, the fact that really kind of he and Jeff kind of had to eat something that I think absolutely was probably more of, of the commissioner's doing. But the idea that, like, this is how bad it is for the Mets. Think about how long that conversation was on Twitter and go search. I don't even know if anyone asked who shot this video. Like, think about that. Anywhere else it would be like, how dare they? You remember the Rosa Rayner thing, right, in the season last year, Mike Schilt, uh, who had issues that I had on air, uh, one a mic issue, the other one he didn't realize that he had a 24-year-old Instagramming him in the background. You know, to me, it, it's that's the Mets, though. The Mets have been heralded at guys having great careers elsewhere. We bring them to New York, and they used to have in the mid-80s, Catch the fever was one of the slogans. And then I determined the fever was what you get when you become a Met. And then you cure yourself like Kevin Mitchell when you leave. <laughs> uh, because there was a lot of <laughs> Carlos Baerga, Roberto Alomar, Jeremy Burnett's not one. Let's do it twice. And the list goes on and on. Kenny Rogers, 1999. And I've heard some great stories about what went on between Phillips and Duquette and Bobby Vives down in the dugout as Dotel is out there in kind of his own Ubaldo Jimenez Britain moment. And here's Kenny Rogers walking Andrew Jones on four pitches. And then Wilmer Flores, because only the Mets could take a great moment of a guy who really cares about you and make everything about it awful. The fact that he's crying when he's traded and poor T see who I love. You got Terry Collins in the presser had no idea what was happening. And you got the, I mean, that is part of the Met thing though, Dan, is the lack of communication and the lack of, of parallel line, right? Like you think about here in Atlanta where I am, Cox and, and, and John Sherholz, you think about now, right? The Indians, there's so many different teams where you just know everybody's kind of have you ever felt like the Mets are all going in the same direction? Or is it always like someone in the front office or in the dugouts going backwards at the same I, time? I've never felt any two people on the Mets were going in the same direction. <laughs> <laughs> never, never mind all of them. I, I, I will tell you, so a couple of things. The Wilmer Flores thing, uh, for any baseball fan who doesn't know what that is, Google it. And if you have any kind of a heart, you will have a tear in your eye at the end of that thing, solely on behalf of Wilmer Flores. And so Casey mentioned TC. That's Terry Collins, the former manager of the New York Mets. And and I don't know, I, I think I know how you feel about Terry Collins. So when I was doing Sunday love Night Terry Baseball, yes. I love Terry Collins, me too. When I was doing Sunday Night Baseball, you know, as you know, we would go in and have managers meetings before every game. And Terry Collins, I am not joking, with the possible exception of Tito, of Terry Francona, Terry Collins was my favorite manager to go in there and sit and talk to because he was so human and he yes. was so real and he was yes. so honest with us. And he always looked just so tired sometimes because there was always something going on that was taking some of his energy away from managing the baseball team. And I think he kind of got a raw deal with the fans there. I think there's a lot of stuff that happened that wasn't his fault that got hung on him. And, you know, was he perfect? No. Were there a couple questionable decisions and high profile moments? Yes. But I, I thought he was really good. And, and I, I really enjoyed getting to know him and talking baseball with him. He was he was as honest with us, I think, as any manager I've ever met. I love that. And he's sincere, right? All those things. And I think you, you guys who 
are managing teams like that, they wear it. I mean, Jeff Van Gundy looked like he hadn't slept in like three years by the time yeah. he was done with the Knicks. Go back to the – I mean, he didn't sound anything like this when he was on the yeah. bench. Yeah. I just worked with Stan for a while, who's fantastic, and the two of them looked like they they like were out of a cryogenic chamber once they got <laughs> done with these jobs. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's different, and, you know, I won't be bitter just because you brought me – to the moment of familiar with a six run lead, but we can forget about all that and Alex Gordon's home run and, and the rest of that. Yeah. It's painful. Are we through the honorable mentions? Yes, now we're through, into yeah, the, so the, those are, those are on the cutting room floor. Dan. Okay. I mean, this is a very, this is a process I went through. So I'll do it this way. I'll give you one at a time. So I got to tie at five and the rest I promise is normal after that. I, <laughs> okay. I couldn't figure out really kind of where to go, but I came up with a tie and I had the Luis Castillo drop pop up in that game in 2009 where the Mets, people remember the pop-up in this nationally televised game, but they don't remember the Mets were not good at all that year. And the 3-1. Popped up. Castillo. Dropped the ball! He dropped the ball! Here comes Teixeira! And the Yankees win! Oh my goodness! He dropped the ball! They won like 70 games, I think, somewhere around there. But here is Castillo, basically, with just an exemplary moment. And then the other one that I had in there was the situation with Cespedes in general, which I would almost say is kind of like a like a three-part saga. The first part of it being that he is sitting there after coming back after a long layoff after an injury. He had been gone a while, many, many months. He comes in. He gets a game-winning hit against the Yankees. He is in front of the press saying, I'm done. My heel is all kinds of messed up. That's it. I'm out. At the same time, down the hall, the brass and Mickey Calloway ear to ear grins about how the rest of the season is about to change. How these things don't know that the other is happening. I have no idea. And then you fast forward to the wild boar because nobody else was qualified. <laughs> the ditch on the ranch that he wasn't aware of that somehow he fell into. And then my favorite only the Mets could take a situation where a guy literally leaves you and then basically after ghosting you, sends you a text and says, sorry, we've broken up and make themselves look worse by going out and trying to publicly make a scene with it and then saying, we don't know where Cespedes is, but he's safe. The Cespedes drama and Castillo's pop-up I have as a tie at number five. So two things, and I don't know exactly what's on your list. I said to Casey, I don't want to hear the list till we do the podcast. It's amazing the Cespedes thing is only number five. And I'm totally with you that I'm sure it deserves to be number five. I live in fear of what the other four are going to be if Cespedes is number five. And my favorite part of Cespedes is that the wild boar has become like a footnote after all of this because of everything else that's gone on, whereas the wild boar would be number one on any other franchise's list of painful moments it 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 really is as messy as it gets but i look uh, at it as heroic dan you're I better mean, off without him take the I, board I, know. Down. I mean it's a heroic yeah. moment for cespedes how is he safe <laughs> after taking that board down um <laughs> all right <laughs> number, number four. four number four i have what i'm calling generation k and the aftermath because i'm trying to throw the dark night in there if I can, because, you know, he ran it. Now, I live in Atlanta. There's traffic everywhere. I understand it. We've all covered games at Dodger Stadium. If they would, they'd have you stay right on the corner because nobody knows how long it's going to take to get there. But, you know, the Dark Knight has own issues. But Generation K for me, for those who don't know what that story is, is back in, I want to say it's, oh, my gosh, it's at 93 maybe around there, where Jason Isringhausen, who became one of the great closers, right, of all time.
all-time 300-plus saves. At the time, was a stud arm as a starter. Started, I think, 9-2 and two that year. He was brilliant. Paul Wilson, great left-hander who ended up between the Mets and the Reds and several others going through just so many elbow injuries. And Bill Pulsifer, who they were very high on and ended up pitching really, really well on Long Island for the Long Island Ducks and not the Mets. Uh, they were going to be the big three of the Braves. And and that's pretty much how it's gone for Tukey Toussaint and Bryce Wilson and Kyle Wright. So maybe maybe they're getting their own. But the overhyping of players and not understanding talent and not learning from their mistakes of the past, to me, I'll call it Generation K in the aftermath. That whole situation, all three of those pitchers, two of them injury-riddled their whole careers. Pulsifer basically never pitched much after that. Isringhausen, is he the only one who really did uh, did a lot in his career, but as a closer with the A's and the Cardinals. So the overhyping and Generation K, to me, is number four. Okay, and, and that's good. That That's almost like regular baseball, not too much you know, yes. melodrama to it. Uh, yes. I don't want to interfere with one, two, and three, but uh, you, you know, you jog my memory with Isringhausen, who, of course, was on the other side in a great National League championship series where where the Cardinals beat the Mets. And maybe the best catch I've ever seen in my life happened in that series. And it was by a Met, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And nobody even remembers the catch because they lost the series. I thought Andy Chavez's catch is one of the best I've ever seen. (laughs) I remember. Uh, You know what? The the thing that's forgotten about that, right? And And remember the sign, the strength to be here, was the sign that he jumped over, the ad. And, you know, the thing that people forget about is you go, I think that was the sixth inning. It was a rolling drive. And at the bottom of that inning, Valentin, who had had a very, very good series, longtime veteran, White Sox, other teams, he and Chavez came up with, I want to say it was at least one, there might have been two runners on base, and a chance at that time to take that momentum. If Eddie Chavez, I think he came on with a runner on, he was definitely up the next half of an inning, if he gets a base hit... He might be one of the biggest heroes the franchise ever had. Then at some point, the ghost of Mets past came to him and reminded him what uniform he was wearing and that he'd soon be wearing two other ones in the same division and that he wouldn't remember this either. So it's unfortunate. <laughs> but that was that was close until Aaron Heilman, Yadier Molina, Dan. It was close. Okay. Number three. Number three for me. Uh, I've got the situation last year, which I will call the Metsiest month I've ever spent. And that was a month in which we saw the irony before one of the great runs that the team's been on in years. But you've got the Vargas uh, situation with the media, where you've got players, and I've always gotten along with Jason, but players fighting with the media and then doubling down. You've got chairs being thrown, if you recall, in the manager's office. You've got that same exact month, the idea that Brody was sitting on a couch in Connecticut and calling to the team to tell them how many pitches DeGrom should throw and when he should come out of the game also at the same time. And then my favorite in all of this, which was just a train wreck of two weeks, and I was on the air as it was happening, nothing says Mets than if you go to the day of the Vargas non-really apology. Mickey Calloway comes out to the press area, right, for his pregame, And he reads some prepared short statement, which is a very, it's not a Jeff Luno bad apology, but it's pretty bad apology. (laughs) And I love Mickey. Pretty bad. And not written by him, I'm sure, but pretty bad. In the next hour, the entire Twitter world proceeds to rip him, especially because media members who are defending members of their own are now more vigorous about it. And everybody likes to jump on the Mets. So what do the Mets do? 
Not even like, you know how sometimes, well, I'll wait a little bit. I don't want to be obvious that I really liked her. I'll wait 48 hours, not four minutes, right, to make the phone call. The Mets don't really care about things like that, Dan, because an hour later, before the game still, (laughs) Mickey Calloway came back out. They called everybody back to the press room to redo the apology. I ask you, imagine that conversation behind the scenes telling this man who's been in this game a long, long time that he now has to go after a statement they wrote for him he read that everyone hated again before the game and go apologize for his apology and do a better one and then go manage a baseball game. It was part of the Metsiest month. I mean this. I mean, in all the years, it, it, that many things in one month, I don't know if it's ever looked as bad as it did that month last year, which would, by the way, just a couple of weeks, ironically, crazy as it is, before that great run of winning 16 out of 17 games. So did that come, without going too deep into the weeds on this, do you think that moment originated from Fred Wilpon or Jeff Wilpon? That would be not Fred Wilpon, Dan. Not Fred. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no further questions, Your Honor. I'll go with not Fred Wilpon, Dan. Uh, number two, and the, the first two are kind of just iconic symbols of the Mets' lifetime. Number two is Mr. Met giving the finger to the Met fans. <laughs> Mr. Met made a gesture familiar to every New Yorker, but certainly not expected from the family-friendly face of the franchise. I Look, I root for two teams. One, the owner through Charles Oakley, who gave his blood, sweat, and tears to that team more than anybody, out of the arena while he brought Spree to go, and I like Spree, but to go sit next to him, a guy who, before he was even done, turned back into Spree and was giving him the bird running down the floor, <laughs> down the <laughs> sideline. And and a guy who basically wants to go ahead and have you know, hosts who do what we do fired because they say bad things about him and Jim Dolan. That's one thing. Mr. Met, we don't even know who Mr. Met is. Mr. Met could be the same person that was just sitting there and they were Pluto when you went to Disney World. We don't know who's underneath there. There was a situation, for those who do not know of this, uh, just a, a few years ago, where Mr. Met ended up, somebody apparently made a mother joke in the crowd. Now, you're Mr. Met, okay? You have to prepare for tomatoes, batteries. You have to have unbelievable will. There's a training that Apollo Creed gives you on the beach somewhere, Dan, <laughs> to figure out how to deal with being Mr. Met. This guy just lost it, a teenager, turned around and just gave the finger to the fans. And I remember the cover of the paper. And to me, that was as symbolic as anything else when you sit there and you look at what happened there. And then number one for me, and I do this partially because, and we both know him well, I love Steve Phillips, but I also love getting on him for the fact that Bobby Bonilla will make more than than he does every single year in the beginning of July, <laughs> thanks to him. And he has reminded us that July 1st, even though a very important national holiday, uh, in some other areas of, of the world, if you're in the world of Met fans, the only thing you care about is a $1 million check every single season, Dan, to Bobby Bonilla on the 1st of July. Our Mets fans, they literally will text each other and say, happy Bobby Bonilla Day on July the 1st, right? Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> And I feel like, but that is, to me, like Mr. Met giving the finger, because I I wrote so many down, Mr. Met giving the finger to his own fans. (laughs) That's my Like, I think the best mascot, like, I mean, Mr. Red, no offense, a little bit of a copycat, be original. And then the idea that we're, Bobby Bonilla, who was, look, it was, that whole thing was a disaster. Like, speaking of overhype and the way that it panned out, but it's not like you're paying David, I'll pay David Wright a million dollars every year and have no problem with that. Like, could we pay like, there? Mike Curtis Granderson, Michael Kadire, you know how many nice people I could think of? And Bobby's a nice guy, but like as a Met, this was not a positive experience for any of us, Dan. <laughs> so that's, it's a brutal moment. 
that's number one for me. Still paying Bobby Benia every year a million bucks. All right. Having unburdened yourself of all of this, do you feel worse or do you feel better? Um, I think both. I think both. I think part of me believes that this will be a new list with all sorts of new things that'll happen. It's like the beginning of a season where you're like, wow, I can't wait to see what happens next. Except really, you don't want to see what happens next. Look, the good thing about being a Met fan is they keep you on the toes and that every five days, Jacob DeGrom pitches. That's about it. <laughs> you, bu- you buried the lead big time right there. Yeah, yeah that's about <laughs> it, my friend. That's about it. What a good sport Casey is. I hope that made him feel a little bit better. But he's not just a Mets fan. He's also an incredibly knowledgeable baseball talk show host. So we'll pick his brain for some info on the trade deadline and the pennant races in part two of our visit with him on our next episode. A Swing and a Bell is produced by Christian Ryan. We invite you to leave us a like or a review. Please subscribe if you're interested and hope you'll join us again next time. I'm Dan Shorten.